Welcome to the Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Mike. And with Ian. And we're reading through the Aubrey Matron novels of Patrick O'Brien. This week, we're at the very end of Desolation Island. Ian, can you bring us up to date with where we are and where we're going? Oh, Mike, I'd love to. So Stephen and Jack are aboard the horrible old leopard, HMS Leopard. The crew's been decimated by jail fever. They've had a narrow escape, sinking their more powerful Dutch warship, the Vaxamheit, in stormy seas. And while all this has been going on, Stephen's been manoeuvring himself into a position of trust, a position of being trusted by Louisa Wogan, who's an American spy being transported aboard the Leopard to Australia. And also, I think, of being trusted by her rather hapless lover, Michael Herapath. And while all this was going on, Stephen was nursing the crew through the epidemic, and we've heard he's been fighting his own battle with laudanum addiction. Thanks, Ian. And how about this week? Where are we headed? Well, this week we start out with a leopard in bad shape. She's undermanned. She's been damaged. The water has already been started overboard. She has a wounded captain, Jack took wounds in the very, very last exchanges of the gunfire between her and the Vaxam Heights. So we have to see this week whether she can make it all the way to Australia. Is this book going to finish with the leopard swinging safely at anchor in Botany Bay? Or is there some other destination awaiting her? And what's going to become of Stephen's great plan to poison the well of American and French intelligence, which is going to require the unsuspecting Louisa Wogan, the American spy, to have some kind of contact with the outside world. You know, we, you know we've been following Stevens maturing as an intelligence agent, his sort of coming into his own. And, and we thought for a right. while now it would be really helpful to get a little insight into this world of intelligence. So what, what do we have in store also this week? Oh, well, we have a great special guest to help us interpret Stevens' work and career so far as an intelligence agent. We're going to be joined this week by Brian Wilson, who's a former intelligence professional in the US and nowadays is co-host of his own podcast, The Combat and Classics Podcast. So it's going to be great to talk to Brian. Right. We would tell you more about him, but of course, the standard warning applies. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And I'm sure he's never heard that before. <laughs> no, no, exactly. How lame is that? That I, I figured Jack Aubrey might turn up his face in mirth. Everybody else would boo me right off the deck. <laughs> That's very good. Oh, Lord. So where should we pick it up? They're, they're sailing on into less stormy seas now. They've managed to escape the Vaxam height. The weather has calmed down a little bit, even though they're a long way south. What's going on? Well, I, I love it. You know, as they're on these less stormy seas, Stephen kind of is assessing Jack's wound. And he says, I dare say it'll give you a pain in your head for some days. The wound itself is spectacular and it will spoil your beauty. But you have had many worse. Huh. It was Lord Nelson's wound, you know, your forehead hanging over your eye. But at this, O'Brien writes, Jack smiled. He would almost have done without an arm to follow Nelson. Ah, oh, the Nelson touch. That's a really yeah. big deal for Jack, isn't it, that connection? It really is. But it's not all just about the glory and about the, the wounds honorably obtained, is it? No, 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 not at all. You know, I, I think he's, he genuinely uh, believes Nelson is a figure to be followed here. And would follow him admirably, but uh, unfortunately, not of all the members of his ship's crew are necessarily following him admirably at the moment. No, they're not. We've got this uh, Lieutenant Grant, who's, what, 35 years experienced, a real kind of grey-headed 
South Seas navigator, who we heard last time is resenting his position a bit, being second to Pullings. He's resenting Jack himself, you know, another one of these characters where a lieutenant in one of Jack's ships resents his glory and his luck and his reputation for bravery. Right. And Grant also has some followers in the ship's company and in the gun room, and they're questioning Stephen on whether the wound means that Jack has lost his intellect, because, of course, that would mean a bid for command by somebody, presumably Grant. And I like the fact that Stephen really turns this back at them, and he says, you're being impertinent and you're forgetting your place. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure, though, Grant is right that they're far south, that they're going to start encountering ice and they're going to start encountering snow. Grant already is saying, I think, you know, well, I would have turned back north days ago, but they are where they are because Jack maneuvered the ship to get away from the Vaxham height. But for sure, the snow starts and they spot what we would call an iceberg, but which they're going to call all the way through the book, a mountain of ice. Right. And and they've decided now that they're so far south that it's kind of no longer a good idea to run back up to the Cape, but instead are going to head due east to Botany Bay. This gives Stephen a little concern. He's learned that Louisa Wogan is now pregnant therefore bonding Michael Harapath closer to her. And I think Stephen was really thinking as soon as they get to the Cape, his documents that he secretly had, Harapath copying to get secretly get a copy to Mrs. Wogan would be heading straight to the embassy. But now that'll have to be delayed a little while. Right. So the big intelligence coup seems to be out of reach and maybe there's not going to be an opportunity to get this all quickly back to the Americans and then to the French. So I, I also noticed this resentment that Grant has towards Jack surfaces in an argument among the officers. And Babington this time is taking the part of of Jack's trusted friend and advocate. And Babington's pointing out that the current always sets in. He's he's navigated a lot in northern latitudes up near Newfoundland. And he says he's noticed that the current always sets in towards an ice island. And the larger the island, the stronger the current. And other voices, presumably Grant among them, said, ah, that's all stuff. Everyone knows the current sets eastward in southern latitudes. And besides, that was the Newfoundland banks. And they say something like, keep that for your Newfoundland dog or tell it to the Marines, which I think is a pretty standard phrase for saying, yeah, tell it to somebody who cares. Oh, man. And having disregarded this, this becomes a little bit prophetic because a dense fog sets in. They had sent some boats out to to really mine the ice to replace the water that they had to send overboard in that chase. And they bring these boats back in. They're worried, but with Grant in command, Jack down below recuperating, the leopard strikes this mountain of ice stern on, and they lose their rudder and quickly start taking on water. Oh, and this is this is one of these really grim moments to me. Like it's it's very clear that this damage is mortal for the leopard being hold below the water line, losing your steering gear. They're now really on the brink of a big disaster. It's really grim to read it as you feel all of this tension and this foreboding un- un- unraveling in the writing. And I was thinking to myself, well, Jack wasn't on deck when they collided with this submerged iceberg, but Jack's last order before he retired to his cabin was to give the iceberg a wide berth. And we even heard that order being shared on deck. Right. So I think maybe we're invited to speculate, did did Grant or Turnbull disobey him? Or was it just the fog? 
that led them into this collision with the iceberg. Yeah, is this Grant thinking he knows better? Yeah. Or or yet, you know, are they just in a part of the ocean where there's a number of things above and below water that it's just a fraught with danger? Yeah. So they've they've hit this mountain of ice. They're taking on water. They're pumping hard. Folks are going at it and doing everything they can to lighten the ship. They're tossing the guns, the provisions, the anchors, the great cables. Yeah. Overboard, they're sealing the hatches so that the the water doesn't come up and swamp them that way. And in the meantime, their sails, some of what's left of them, are torn to ribbons in in the strong winds here. So they, you know, they're pumping furiously. They're trying to pass a sail filled with oakum under the ship to seal the leak. And as you say, Ian, it's it's really grim. It's kind of bleak. And you know, O'Brien writes that men had now been pumping so long and so furiously in this bitter rain and sleet that the moment they had a pause in the shelter, they fell asleep as soon as they had eaten or even while they were eating. Oh, you can really feel the disaster unfolding before them. It's horrible, horrible stuff to read. Mind right. you, there's, there's a redeeming turn, I think, which is that Grant does actually seem to have come to his senses a little bit and he's being a bit more helpful. Jack even invites him rather awkwardly to come and have tea in the cabin. He's trying to make some sort of rapprochement with Grant, which to his credit, Jack's done a few times. We saw him do that with, or try to do that with Clonfort in the last book. Right. But Jack can't move around much because of the injured leg. Grant is actually taking some of the load for Jack and commanding the men, looking out for the pumping, looking out for the repair parties. These really heartbreaking episodes of that. The pump breaks, it gets choked with coal, the chain links break, and it just looks like they're making no progress. Yeah, it's really starting to wonder how how long are these folks going to hold up here? You know, how long are they going to keep yeah. going under these conditions? Yeah, because it's really about human endurance at this point. You know, they've gone a long way south to escape the Vaxham Heights. They're now they've got to run east because they're in a region where the wind is almost always prevailing westerly. And mm-hmm. with sails at the front and nothing, no rudder behind, the boat's going to happily sail dead downwind forever, for as long as it'll float and as for as long as the crew are alive to keep it afloat. Wow. So how can they keep the boat afloat? <laughs> how can they keep themselves alive? But then at some point, they're going to have to find a way to make some ground to the north. So without, without a rudder, they're not going to be able to make any ground to the north. And they need to be able to make ground northwards if they're going to find any kind of land to help them make repairs so they can make it all the way to Botany Bay. Yeah, and I, I think you know even Jack is hard-pressed. He'd been trying to be very encouraging, keep the crew going as he normally is, and he kind of gets to the point where he just doesn't know. There's really no good news to share. And he asks Bonded, how long do you think the crew is going to hold out? And Bonded, very honestly, this is kind of keeping with this developing relationship that you mentioned a couple books back again between Bondin and and the officers and Stephen and Jack in particular here. Yeah. Bondin yeah. says, you know, I doubt they'll last out today. I mean, the hands that don't know the captain, they say the boat should have been got out right away. They say, Mr. G knows these waters and will take them back to the Cape. They say the captain's not right in the head. I crowned one bugger for that, beg pardon, sir. But it, <laughs> in course... They all know she's an unlucky ship. And we've we've encountered this before. We've encountered the, the idea of a Jonah before. Mm. We've also, in, earlier in this book, we got some of this foreboding as well. This whole idea of the imminent disaster reminds me of the passage in Master and Commander where aboard the brig Sophie, Jack was trying to evade the French squadron and it was just desperate and 
the outcome was bad in the end. But earlier on in this book, Pullings had mentioned that this can happen. The discipline of the ship's company can start to break down. He said, there's an old belief in the lower deck that once the ship's aground or once she can't steer, then the captain's authority is gone. That's the law and nothing will get it out of their stupid heads. And <laughs> Pullings is foretelling is coming true here. Right. I mean, we're really at that point now. You know, Bond is talking about the crew, but I think this is kind of the moment where there's this potential for Grant and his followers, as Bond says, the, you know, the folks that don't know the captain, and Jack and his followers to kind of see what's going to happen here. How's it going to break? So it's a great moment here between Grant and Jack. Yeah, Grant reports that the water's over the top of the well, and he goes to Jack and says, shall I provision the boats? I presume that you'll go in the launch. Jack, as you might expect from Jack, or at least as we expect from Jack, because we've known him, He's not leaving the ship, but she's sinking under us, says Grant. And Jack's got these ideas. He's not really very articulate at this moment. He says he's got some ideas about fothering the leak, about making a rudder with a spare topmast. And Grant really makes his point clearly. He says, sir, the hands have wrought hard, very hard. We cannot honestly give them any more hope. If I speak plain, I doubt they would come to their duty. And Jack looks at Grant and says, would you still obey orders, Mr. Grant? I will obey orders, sir, said Grant, deadly earnest. But lawful orders. Is it lawful to order men to their death with no enemy at hand and no battle? I believe the ship must founder. I believe the boats can reach the Cape. And it's a bit of a relief that they do come to an understanding. You know, Grant doesn't just break into deeper resentment and mutiny and undermine Jack. They kind of agree as gentlemen and as mariners that Jack's going to stay with the boat and Grant, in an orderly way, is going to provision the boats. And Jack, I think, very very reasonably says, off you go, God speed you well. But again, this real sadness and desperation takes over. At least that's how I read it, Mike. Yeah. The, the provisioning of the boats is going on, and the hands get into the spirit room, and there's this really horrible, sordid rush for the boats at the end. No, it's awful. I mean, with, with people drunk, all chaos breaking out. People are going over the side. Some folks are falling out of the boat. Some folks are trying to climb into the boats and being kicked back out of the boats. I think it's horrible to watch. And, and almost, I got the impression that Jack is, he's worried about what am I going to do with a ship? And O'Brien tells us that, you know, Jack kind of adjourns to work on his plans for a rudder. But I, I kind of almost wonder, it's, it's part of that is out of his hands now. And I'm sure it's completely anathema to Jack and his good order and, you know, the immemorial custom of the service and anything that he would expect <laughs> on his own ship. That's right. And the, it does seem like this has almost overwhelmed Jack as this drunken brawl happens as the hands that are leaving finally take their leave in the boats. Jack withdraws to his cabin to work on plans for a rudder. You know, that's not the Jack that we know. No. And that strikes this really sort of tragic note. Almost everything that Jack values about the Navy has deserted him. His authority is gone. His relationship with the ship's company, or a large part of it, has gone. Half of his officers have gone. Maybe even his luck has deserted Jack Aubrey. Yeah. And oh, that's a real heart sink moment if you're reading it. Yeah, here we are at the end of the chapter. And it's one of those times where I'm telling myself, look, I know there's a lot more books coming and I know he's in them. <laughs> so there, something's got to happen here. Right. But, but I'm a little worried as I, as I flip the page. You know, and lo and behold. And rather like O'Brien, lo and behold, just, just <laughs> like O'Brien, probably some of the most dark and desperate moments are undescribed 
because we turned the page and we've fast forwarded by a few weeks. And I just love this moment. I read this entry and my this gush of warmth and emotion comes through. Jack copies his rough notes into the logbook. Wednesday, December 24th. Sorry, British style. Wednesday, 24th December. <laughs> PM in the afternoon, hauled up foresail, veered out of stop water to check the ship's way, past fothering sail forward from abaft the stern post. Bowsing it taut, the sail answered and the pumps gained five foot in the day. thank you patrick o'brien you've given us back a little bit of luck oh now mike i remember reading about the moment on another christmas eve in 1968 when apollo 8 carrying three astronauts emerged from the dark side of the moon it had gone around the moon first time men had ever gone out of radio range of earth and they were depending on their the burn, the transorbital burn to happen on the far side of the moon and waiting to hear what happened after Apollo 8 emerged from radio blackout. And this great moment when radio crackles and we get... Apollo 8, Houston. Houston, Apollo 8, over. Hello, Apollo 8. Loud and clear. Yeah, boy. And uh, I'll tell you, say what you want about 2020. And there's much to be said about it. A lot of people think back to 1968. And believe me, we needed to hear that just about then, just like I needed to hear that the leak had been plugged on Wednesday, 24 December (laughs) in the midst of Desolation (laughs) Island here. Well, they, they press on. They're trying to find a way to steer the ship. As you said, this is still you know, a, a huge issue. Getting the leaks under control is one thing, but the, to get anywhere, they've got to be able to steer. And O'Brien kind of rewards us a little bit and certainly rewards Stephen with the appearance of a bluefin whale, <laughs> to Stephen's great delight. And Stephen, now always oh, good with great. the world again. He's talking about the harmony of the ship, how everybody's you know working together again. The morale is back. And he finds out that, according to the men, this is because the crazy master that we remember, Mr. Larkin, who they have identified as having been the Jonah, is no longer on the ship. That, you know, he was in a holding cell, but in the mad rush to get into the boats, he had been pitched into the sea, apparently. Yeah. There's the, what do they call it? The Jonah's lift, where someone accidentally on purpose finds themselves over the side. You've got to wonder. <laughs> exactly. But as you say, Mike, they've, they're still without steering. And Jack's seamanship comes to the fore again here. He's putting together this plan for a big rigged sea or a Pakenham rudder, it's called. And there's this moment of great hope. They sight the Crozet Islands to the north and he manages to get the ship. And for a little while, the ship's head is, is west to windward of this last of the Crozet Islands. And we have this moment where we think, oh, maybe it's all going to be okay. And gradually, gradually, the ship drifts to leeward. Jack decides to summon all of his resources and try one more heave of this steering oar to bring the ship's head to wind. Maybe even he's intending to tack, I don't know. And we get this really bold matter of fact, but really heartbreaking moment. There was a long rending crack and the oar broke at the head. The loom and paddle went astern, held by a guy rope. The leopard's head swung from the wind. The island moved to the left in a long, slow, even motion until it lay on a larboard quarter, dwindling astern, as inaccessible as the moon. 
Oh, I hadn't spotted the reference to the moon there, but that'll do for Apollo 8. Right. And, uh, and, and Jack says, in Mizzen Topsail and Top Gallant, in the midst of the heavy silence. Ooh. So we're back to scudding away downwind in front of prevailing westerlies. And by the way, if you want to follow where we are, you will know that we love Tom Horn's website, cannonade.net. This sighting of the Crozet Island, which is in 46 degrees south latitude, is all really nicely laid out on the cannonade.net website. Get along there and you'll see how this plays out. We're going to come back to geography and cannonade.net in a short while, I think. Right. I love you know seeing so many of the listeners' comments on Facebook and, and the other platforms about yeah. how Cannonade is helping them to follow these journeys. It's really fabulous. That's great, isn't it? So lack of steerage and lack of water isn't their only problem, is it, Mike? No, no. We find out now we have another scurvy outbreak. And you think, oh, for crying out loud, what else could possibly go wrong? And and Stephen's really puzzled here because there's no good reason for a scurvy outbreak at this point. But luckily, a little detective work turns up that some of the men are trading their lime juice, their lime juice-laced grog, that is, for tobacco. And so by not drinking their grog, but trading it for tobacco, they've now got scurvy. So Steve manages to work out a plan with Jack such that everybody is getting an adequate supply of lime juice. And the uh, scurvy is banished, but then the seal on the leak no longer holds. And the requirement for constant pumping has returned. With scurvy aboard, with the leak starting, with yet another up and down and up and down in this story that is just, you know, we're just gripping the edges of our chair again. I think we just need a break, Ian. I think we do. We'll be right back after this short break. So, welcome back. I, I I hope that your vitamin C levels have been restored with a bit of lime juice, and I hope that that your constant pumping is is holding now, and that the seal on the leak is working well for you. By the time you get to Mike's age and my age, you know that can't be taken for granted. <laughs> well, Ian, what what's the magic elixir here in Patrick O'Brien's writing? At least in the alchemy, the chemistry between Stephen and Jack, what could turn this around? Well, it may well be that they're going to take some time out. And guess what? They're going to take some time out to play. Um, Jack asks Stephen to join him for a half hour of music. What do you say to the Mozart B minor? And I'll read on because the description of how they played is very moving and very touching. I think it says a lot about how O'Brien writes music into the story of these two characters. They played not beautifully, but deep ignoring their often discordant strings and striking right into the heart of the music they knew best, the true notes acting as their milestones. On the poop above their heads, where the weary helmsman tended the new steering oar and Babington stood at the con, the men listened intently. It was the first sound of human life they'd heard apart from the brief Christmas merriment, and for a time they could scarcely measure. Bonden and Babington, who had known Jack for many years, exchanged a glance of significance. The last movement worked up to its splendid end, to the magnificent, inevitable final chord, and Jack laid by his violin. Whoa. Oh, it's great. The, the music swelling in the background in the movie, and we know there's better things to come here, right? Oh, great. It's a, and it's a great emotional punctuation mark. The only issue I have with this emotional punctuation mark, beautifully timed and written though it is, 
Mozart never wrote a darn thing in B minor. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> it's amazing, right? One one piano piece in B minor. There might have been the occasional slow movement, the occasional inner movement that that found its way into B minor. Not a darn thing. B flat major, C minor, C major, all the other majors and minors you can think of. E flat major, D minor, famous requiem in D minor. Nothing in B minor. So sorry. Patrick O'Brien has to take another point, I think, for being a bit of a faker with the music references. Maybe we can find something else that's um, soothing and life-affirming Mozart. We might we might tweet that out. But sorry, folks, no B minor for me. You know, it's funny. Maybe it's because we're thinking about intelligence this episode, but it occurs to me that O'Brien, who was so meticulous in all of his research, certainly couldn't have gotten all this music wrong. So... I really am starting to wonder if we can't, maybe we can enlist Brian's help or somebody else to say, is there a code in here? What's with all this different oh. lettering in music pieces? Yeah. Maybe O'Brien's telling us something if we can look across the canon. I don't know. Maybe, Just he's, telling us, maybe he's telling us who, who killed JFK. Perhaps that's a secret message. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Do you oh, know what? I, I really hate the idea that this could slide from Patrick O'Brien into, uh, oh, what was the guy? The Da Vinci Code. Thank you. Thank the you. Thank you. Code. Right, right, right. There you go. Well done. Dan Brown. Yeah. So I hate the idea that we could slide the yeah, slide from an O'Brien novel, the height of literary achievement to the Da Vinci Code, which is a good page turner, but it ain't literature. <laughs> <laughs> well put. Well put. Oh. We'll see. We'll see. So we're starting to get a sense of where we might be headed. Our big One of our big questions at the beginning, Mike, was, are we going to finish this novel swinging anchor in Botany Bay or are we headed someplace else? There's a clue in the name of the book. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. For all of us who are wondering, why is this thing called Desolation Island? Jack now confides to the crew that he believes they can reach this island called Desolation Island, a place that the whaler captain that Jack had, had visited with a little bit early in the book had helped him place on a map. And so he tells the men, he heads south the sails fill, morale increases, but the glass starts to drop. And it drops, O'Brien writes, quicker than, than Jack had ever seen before. Before the storm comes in, land is spotted. Jack devises an incredible plan for reaching it and anchoring with the minimal equipment and supplies that they have left. It's great. And this is a big risk, right? Heading further south means higher latitudes, worse weather, more risk. And if he misses then he's got even more ground to make to the northwards. So there's a little bit of geographical nerdery that we can dig into here. There's a controversy about the exact identity of the desolation island that's described here in the book. Some say, including some very venerable people who are authorities on O'Brien's writings, some say that the definitive clue is in this book where we hear the name of the French captain who allegedly discovered this island called Tremarec. And... There was a real Captain Tremarec. His full family name was de Kerguelen de Tremarec. And therefore, says one school who thought, it must be Kerguelen Island, which is a real island, 48 degrees south. Some say, on the other hand, that there's a more definitive clue later on in the novel 13-Gun Salute. Apologies if this is a spoiler. I don't think it is. In the 13-Gun Salute, Jack says that Kerguelen is not their desolation island that their desolation island is smaller and further to the southeast. In which case, if you go to cannonade.net, Tom has laid out both alternatives. It's probably then an island called Heard Island, which is in 53 degrees south, which is really seriously far south. 
Now, both explanations make some kind of sense. I don't think, Mike, we've got the scholarly chops to say authoritatively which one we think it is. doesn't really matter, I guess. But it's interesting to talk about it. And both are laid down on the canonade.net website. You can go and look at the flow of the journey to those two different versions of Desolation Island and make your own judgment about which one you think is theirs. And, and our continuing thanks, Tom Horn, for your many years of work in pinning these things here, down. Here. We've got the ship now sailing into a storm, as you say, Ian, sailing dangerously, um, taking them out of the way here. And you know, again, we're building up the tension here. We've got lightning on the far horizon. There are these, you know, O'Brien tells us that there's all these decisions that have to be taken. And and Jack starts to wonder, maybe it would be helpful to get some advice. You know, O'Brien writes, collective wisdom might do better, but a ship could not be a parliament. There was no time for debate. And so here we have Jack once again, and we've seen this before, uh, working alone, and you know his mind weighing the possibilities here, and it's interesting because now I don't know that I remember this before. But O'Brien writes, "The lack of sleep, the pain, the confusion of the day and night for weeks on end had told upon him. His head was thick and stupid, and yet a mistake in the next hour might cost the ship her life." So. Not Aubrey is a Marvel superhero, but Aubrey is a man. Yeah, as a very fallible human. Yeah. Yeah. And so here we are. We've got the ship. We've got the situation. And and again, we're we're back sort of on the edge of our seats here. I, I mean, it's funny. I've said this a few times. This is among the most suspenseful passages of writing in O'Brien's <laughs> canon. And I don't know, until we get to the next most suspenseful passage of writing. It's really great. I think made especially so because, as you say, Mike, we're seeing Jack as the vulnerable human. He, he reproaches himself for having not driven the ship faster earlier. He's made his decision, and we're given this very graphic account of just getting a little closer to the island bit by bit, but also at the same time, this terrible squall, this terrible storm closing in again minute by minute, and it's a very believable, very tense race down to the last few yards to say, can we get all the way up to this inlet in Desolation Island? I was fascinated here that we've got these standard lines like lose not a moment and that we've heard so long. But here is Jack now with this situation, making this decision that he's just got to give it everything he's got, speed, you know, against all odds into this island. And uh, O'Brien writes, he only reproached himself for not having driven her faster sooner, for having lost minutes earlier in the day. And then, you know, we think this is a, is kind of a saying all the time, lose not a minute, but here's Jack realizing this is life and death. And one of those minutes may have cost him. So again, I'm really, you know, my, my nails are into my palms as I'm reading along yeah. here and listening along <laughs> here. And then true to O'Brien's style, like you say, it, O'Brien writes, the transition was unbelievably abrupt. At one moment, the leopard was among bursting seas, furious winds howling upon her, and the next, she was gliding along in silence beneath the shelter of an enormous cliff, her mass still swaying like inverted pendulums from the momentary counterblast that had knocked her captain into the scuppers. I love that. And it goes on nearer and nearer still, with seals staring up, seabirds dropping filth on him, which is great luck. He's following... 
the position of a small island and hearing the cry of the men working the lead, and he calls all hands to bring the ship to an anchor. Jolly boat away, and he gives his orders, and he says, Mr. Babington, we may sleep tight tonight. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And for me, Ooh. mate, that's, a, that's another Santa Claus moment. Love it. You're going, oh, wipe the sweat from the brow. Really, really beautifully told, and a really big emotional payoff. Brilliant writing. It is. It is. You know, and you, you're so caught up with this. And, and then I, I remember thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. Right right as they were coming in, they also spotted a flagpole up on this island. What was that yeah. flagpole? What are they going to find here? What are they going to do with all these prisoners on board? They've got no rudder. They've got no forge. They've got no coal. All that was lost in there. They, you know, are they, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy they've hit the island here, but they're, in the Antarctic, what happens next? And remember, this is Patrick O'Brien, and we've got what at least two chapters left. So, <laughs> oh, I beg your pardon, one one chapter left. So, something's going to go on here. Something's going to happen. Right. So, they're on Desolation Island. They're able to pump the ship dry, or at least as dry as they can get in uh, in the Antarctic summer rains, and they manage to unload the hold, and quite quickly. The ship is transformed into, you know, earnest repair. Mike, it's really amazing. You think these are people in the early 19th century with only the tools they had in their hands and the wood they can cut from trees or the wood they could recycle from the ship. And these people are basically rebuilding a ship right, <laughs> on the shore of an island 2,000 miles from humanity with no stores and no spares. And how much they managed to do and how resourceful they managed to be in at least beginning to bring the ship back to something like a saleable condition, it's really stunning. You think, you know, it, it, it any, is any of us in the 21st century, we'd be we'd be we'd be emailing for some help and hoping that the Amazon drone was going to drop a parcel of uh, drop a parcel of spare parts in the beach right there. Yeah, wondering if I can get cell signal and reach my motor club to come uh, <laughs> come bail me out here. Well, well, it could be because we discovered that that flagstaff is is an American flagstaff, so there must be Amazon coverage and there must be cell service there right any any place where the stars and stripes is to be found oh, and right. i guess yeah and the other thing that tells them that they must be in american territory is there's overeating going on with apologies to all my american friends the crew <laughs> go into a go into a basically a barbecue frenzy right there's a cookout having been starved of meat and fresh provisions for so long they find that they're in this environment where penguins and seals and seabirds are all calm and tame and completely accepting of humans. I haven't learned to fear humans. So the men just go a bit crazy. There's a mass slaughter of wildlife and cooking and eating. And also, to be fair, you know, salting and barreling and storing away for the winter penguins and seal meat and all these other rewards that the island has. And Stephen's not very happy with this. No. He decides that he's, he's so sickened by the crew's killing that he decides to go spend time on his own island within the bay and his, he and uh, Herapath spend some time there. And meanwhile, also, the prisoners have been moved to live on shore alongside the pile of ship supplies. So we've got the ship, we've got the crew on and off the ship, we've got Wogan and the prisoners ashore, and we've got Stephen and Herapath on their own little private natural philosopher's island. Yeah. One thing I love, and you were talking about the crew just sort of ravenous and, and eating everything they can get their hands on. Stephen upset by all the carnage, but also upset at the the dietary habits of the crew. And there's this particularly 
odious cabbage, really a cabbage path they find on this island. It looks like it's been man-made here, this cabbage patch, but the, the cabbage is fabulous from Stephen's standpoint. And I, I can't do the language justice. Would you, would you read this thing where Stephen and Arapath are, are on their island, but they're having a little conversation about the cabbage as it comes up here? All right. And I, I love this partly because like it's lavatory humor and who doesn't love lavatory humor answer. Certainly not Patrick O'Brien. He's down for a bit of lavatory humor. And also we, this is great, dry, sharp, sardonic humor in the mouth of Stephen. All the best, all the best dry jokes end up with Stephen. So Peripath says, well, I think that this cabbage has turned my inward parts to water. Nonsense, says Stephen. It's the most wholesome cabbage I've ever come across. You're not going to join this silly, weak, womanish, unphilosophical mewling and puling about the cabbage. And he goes on to talk about the, the insensate face and hogs abusing the eating of, of meat. Oh, and he says, this great cabbage, it's a virtuous esculent, even its boldest detractors, ready to make the most hellish declarations and swear through a nine-inch plank that the cabbage makes them fart in rumble, cannot deny that it cured them. Let them rumble, he says. Let them rumble till the heavens shake and resound again. Let them fart fire and brimstone. I will not have a single case of scurvy on my hands while there is a cabbage to be culled. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Not only did the cabbage cure the scurvy, but the leopard's crew had eaten this enormous sea elephant's liver and come down with these dull blue splotches all over. And the cabbage cured that as well. Which gives Jack the op- you know, the ability to observe, you know, as O'Brien writes, it made the leopards change their spots. And O'Brien tells us, this is the first really oh, full-hearted oh. laugh, eyes vanishing into a face scarlet with mirth that he'd uttered in the last 5,000 miles. <laughs> uh, Stephen, you know, we've got Jack laughing again. We've got Stephen able to hold court as the as the medical officer here and making sure that this cabbage and all its laxative properties are now mixed in for dinner every night for this ship full of overeaters. So O'Brien giving us a little comic relief in the midst of the tension. Yes. And he's giving us comic relief as well in the dialogue between Stephen and Herapath. And there's a nice bit of storytelling going on here that Herapath has been pretty much everybody's patsy up to now is managing to get a bit of a rapport with Stephen but he's also there to be more or less the willing conversation partner for Stephen at his most confident and his most dry. We go on still on the, on the Island when, uh, uh, has been, been covered with oil by a petrol by one of these, these storm birds. And, uh, Mr. Herapath's complaining about this. He says the ground was wet as well. And I was deep in the excrement of seals. And as this pause and Stephen says, Hmm, petrols cannot abide the least gauchery. Like it's your own fault for being clumsy, you know. Petrols. See, Stephen's a little bit. It's funny. I've I've read some people online asking the question of whether Stephen might have been a little bit on the spectrum, whether he's got a little bit of Asperger's or ASD about him, and he's certainly, I think, showing he's got a better connection emotionally to the birds and the animals than he has to the humans at this point. This is this is for sure. One of the things I do love is that O'Brien. You know, in, in, in it, all the things we learn about nautical things, all the things we learn about natural philosophy, and there's just almost an offhand observation by Stephen here about how all these natural predators on land they walk right amongst each other and don't give each other a second thought, but that once they get mm-hmm. into the ocean, 
boom, they're they're back at it again. So it's almost this. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe is this Jack on land and on sea, the un- nice hail fellow well met, and then back on the ocean. A bit dangerous here. But so we've got Stevens on his island. Jack comes to visit. He wants to pick up his morning albatross eggs. He loves these gigantic omelets that he can make here. And Stephen sees that he has a very uncharacteristic look of despair. And Jack lets Stephen in on the fact that uh, even though the leak has been repaired, um, and and they've been able to actually create a new rudder, back to the ingenuity you talked about, Ian. They need a forge and an anvil and coal and a sledgehammer and armorer's tools to make gudgeons with arms long enough to hang this rudder on the ship. And they have none of that. And without that, you know, their only hope is that they might be able to rebuild a small boat using the wood that they have off the ship and, and perhaps send Babington off on a risky mission after they spend the winter. Um, and, and if yeah. they stuck there for the winter, there's no more, you know, they're running out of rum, they're running out of tobacco. And he's not sure how everybody's going to hold up. And interestingly, in kind of a turn, Jack confides all this to Stephen, but then he looks and sees that Stephen's really pretty, looking pretty grave now. And, and Jack says to Stephen, ah, it's a great relief to whine a little rather than play the perpetual encouraging know-all. So I lay it on a trifle thick. Don't take me too seriously, Stephen. Oh. <laughs> and it is an important moment, isn't it? Because most of the rest of the time, we know that Stephen trusts Jack implicitly to get out of any nautical scrape and i think steven's really shocked to see jack coming clean about just how uh, desperate the situation is we get a nice bit of low-key um physical comedy now with steven and michael herpath who've gone away to be on their island and just like steven he says oh oh where's the boat and the little jolly boat that they rode over has floated away because steven's a lubber and he hasn't tied it up so it's floated away on the tide and they shout and wave and shout holla to the people on shore, but they just think that that's Stephen and Herapath shouting and waving and saying hello. So in a, such a matter-of-fact way that we hardly notice it, O'Brien says, they spot another boat coming into the bay. This boat is a boat belonging to an American whaler that's coming into the bay of Desolation Island. And we've got this difficult situation coming in now where, remember that this is the horrible old leopard, which has a terrible reputation amongst patriotic Americans for having tried to take English seamen, press English seamen by force out of the USS Chesapeake. And the War of 1812 is brewing. There's animosity generally between America and the United Kingdom and England by by name in particular. So we don't think that war has been declared, but we don't really know. And here's this American whaler, presumably the originators of the flagstaff on the beach. And as it turns out, the originators of the cabbages. You ain't touched one of our cabbages, called a voice after them. Cabbages, said Stephen. Cabbages, forsooth. <laughs> like you can whistle for your cabbages. So we've got this situation where Jack knows that this ship, Lafayette, has got a forge and coal and tools, materials, everything he needs, but he doesn't want to make a direct request and get turned down. Uh, he also has some indication that perhaps they have some stuff that the Americans need, but... Uh, he definitely doesn't want a direct confrontation. His Marine captain has said, look, we can take them. They've got a lot of scurvy aboard. 
I've seen their people. They look like they're, they're, there's a lot of sick folks on there. It'd be a pretty easy action. And Jack doesn't want to create a diplomatic incident, especially, as you say, with, with war perhaps on the horizon. On the other hand, if war has been declared, hey, this is a great prize. But he does what he often does when this is a thing about not just battle and ships, but about people and negotiations. Mm. He calls for the doctor. Yeah. And the other thing I notice about this is he's not willing to expose himself to an affront. And this is a, a characteristic weakness for Jack. He had this yeah. problem all along. <laughs> In post-Captain one, he was agonizing over, first of all, his relationship with Diana and then his relationship with Sophie. I can't ask her to marry me because if she says no, that's a direct affront. And this idea of honor and not exposing yourself to uh, apparent weakness is a weakness for Jack. And it's great, as you say, Mike, that he's got Stephen to turn to. And I, I just love the contribution that Stephen makes at this moment. Jack doesn't want to go asking the Americans for a favor. He knows that the thing that the Americans need as sort of a quid pro quo is surgical and medical help. He feels that he can't offer a flat out exchange because again, to be rebuffed would be an affront to the flag and an affront to his authority. You're absolutely right there. The, the situation plays right into Stephen's hand because as Jack is thinking through all of this, Stephen's talking to Harapath, who really would love to go visit the American ship. And Stephen is yeah. seizing on the possibility of letting Harapath know that, whoa, you know, I think Jack would be very hesitant to send you aboard because once an American steps foot aboard an American vessel, he can't be removed. Because Harapath says to Stephen, well, you know, I would come back. I would never leave Mrs. Wogan. You know, she's sort of my hostage on shore. And and Stephen sets the hook by saying, I, I know that, I know that, but, but Captain Aubrey doesn't. And poor Mrs. Wogan, it must go hard with her to see freedom floating not half a mile away for she too would be out of reach of English law once she set foot on an American deck. Perhaps it would be as well not to mention this, however, lest she should break out in some wild, unconsidered act. <laughs> if you wanted to look up disingenuous <laughs> in a dictionary, that's a definition right there. There it is. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. I love it. I'm sure Stephen is feeling a little soiled right now, having had this conversation with Harapath. Well, he manages to persuade Jack to ask Herapath, and Jack puts the situation kind of cleanly before Herapath. That's a good step forward because actually Herapath, we know he's got a bit of a a bit of a conscience and yes. that he sees himself as a gentleman. So that's a chink of light, I think. And maybe the other chink of light is that despite this rather sordid maneuvering, Stephen may yet get to play out his intelligence coup. Right. So Herapath goes aboard the Lafayette. He discovers that the people are in a terrible state. The captain needs a tooth pulled. And Stephen goes over. This is a brilliant episode for Stephen to combine surgical skill and intelligence come diplomatic intuition in really fishing hard for people's real motivation and just leaving the moment there for somebody to step up and do, in this case, the right thing. And right. I love the scene where Stevens treated all of the other sailors on board the Lafayette except for the captain. He says, Captain, I can't treat your tooth. That needs to happen tomorrow in the daylight when things are ready. And the captain says, do you think I'm not going to do the right thing? I tell you, sir, that forge will be on shore at sunrise come hell or high water with an anvil and small coal and all that's proper. And Stephen says, I'm sure of it, but I give you my word. I'll set you up, he says. Drink this down, keep your dressing in its place, and I give you my word you'll pass a tolerable night. 
And I really love this moment. He says, it has been a dirtying day. But I think this is a real cleansing moment for Stephen because he's been able to use generosity and human intuition to overcome caution and convention and national pride. And he's making use of his great instincts and Herapath's conscience. So the optimistic part of me that loves people to be nice is going, yay. Yeah, people are being nice while we're sowing confusion to Boney all at the same time. What could be better? Absolutely. Oh, amen. And it all just nicely falls into place. Herapath minds just to get himself and Wogan still believing that Stephen is a bit of a friend to independence. He's managed to conceal his identity as an intelligence agent from both Herapath and Wogan, despite many risks that that might have not have played out. And we know that this is an important part of his life. We heard in previous novels that his character as an as intelligence agent is precious and can't be revealed. And he's worked very, very carefully and subtly and indirectly to build up this picture where Herapath and Wogan both see him as an ally and will not see Stephen as being the one who puts them into a situation where their move for freedom can be uh, can be predicted. Right. You had mentioned in about this this goodness in people and and Stephen working the situation. I I did love the little remark that uh, as as Jack, who following Stephen's advice, has made sure that all the officers stay off the island while the forge is delivered, so that none of the the British deserters or are, are spotted, so just to keep anything from going wrong. And Jack is watching with his telescope as what he needs is fashioned. And he says, you know, Stephen, there is good even in an American, to which Stephen replies with an Irish <laughs> proverb, the effect that there's good to be found even an Englishman. And he says, but it's not often used, however. <laughs> I just Forget love how, you know, we, right, we get, we get pins in all of us here a little bit to deflate our egos. Just yeah. <laughs> leave it to Stephen. Just brilliant. So Stephen's pulled the captain's tooth, he's looked after the patients, and all the pieces are finally falling into place. He tells Herapath, it's really, again, disingenuous, tells Herapath exactly what must be done to care for the captain, the American captain. Right. He tells the Americans that, you know, they, and he very carefully engineers not bumping into Herapath so that he can't have Herapath have a burst of conscience in front of him, Stephen. I can't have Herapath try and talk himself out of what he obviously feels he wants to do. We hear this remotely this conversation between uh wogan and herapath as well where she's obviously putting pressure on him to help her engineer and escape Stephen, and this echoes a, a line of conversation that we had with james albright a couple of episodes ago Stephen goes and visits mrs wogan and says oh my my natural studies are, are only half complete i'm not halfway through the cryptogams the cryptograms cries mrs wogan no says Stephen. <laughs> cryptogams he says, a cryptogram is a puzzle. I believe the word is used for secret writing. <laughs> and again, right. dripping with disingenuous manipulation. But, oh, thank heavens it works out. It does. And it's interesting. Mrs. Wogan's trying to get out of Stephen whether if the American ship leaves, is the leopard going to be right behind her? And this is Stephen's way of saying, oh, no, 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 no. We're going to be here for a long time. And then kind of a final cherry on top of the Sunday. I don't know if that, that metaphor translates everywhere, but it's kind of on top of this intelligence coup. As Stephen is leaving Mrs. Wogan, she gives him a look of particular significance and invites him as a friend of liberty to visit her friend in London, Charles yeah. Pole, 
a foreign office government man whose mother came from Baltimore, uh, a U.S. city. So, ooh, one more intelligence coup here on Stephen's part before the night's activities are set in motion. A bit of counterintelligence to go with all the other intelligence. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So what's going on here? Two things are happening in parallel. The leopard is finally getting put back into shape because thanks to having the forge and the tools and the coal, the rudder gudgeons are being forged. And as this is going on, the leopard is having the rudder hoisted up. So Jack and all of the ship's company are focused on that. Meanwhile, Stephen borrows Bondon for the evening and has Bondon row him to the island. He's going to make some moonlight observations and Stephen's worried whether Herapath might turn back and he sees the signals being exchanged. He sees the whaler preparing to leave and Bondon wonders what they might be waiting for. Stephen says, no, 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 just just hold tight a second. And like you said before, Mike, Bondon is becoming more of a trusted initiate into what's going on in the world of Jack and Stephen. And they see Herapath and Mrs. Wogan in the jolly boat headed for the whaler. Yeah. And so here, after all this excitement, we get to the last paragraph. The boat came nearer still, passed within whispering distance, and the moon shone on their faces, delighted, ingenuous, and absurdly young. It passed on, swung into the black shadow of the whaler's side. Some low cries from the Lafayette. Get a good hold on the lines, ma'am, and mind your petticoats. Easy all as she rises. And then, as the brig swung to the breeze and gathered way, Mrs. Wogan's laugh floating clear across the water, very cheerful and amused, more amused than ever, so amused that both Stephen and Bondon chuckled aloud, and now, for the first time, it had a fine, triumphant ring. Ooh, that laughter always infected everybody, now coming across the water as Harapath and Louisa Wogan are escaping on the whaler, and Stephen, perhaps chuckling for another reason, Bondon just infected with that laugh. (laughs) Well, it's nice to wonder, isn't it? Is is Bondon beginning to smoke what's going on with Stephen and some of his machinations? I I like to think that he could and he is doing a little bit here because he's joining in the laughter. So we've got to move on to talk about Fortune of War. Before we get to Fortune of War, we also need to spend time with our guest. Well, let me check and see if there's anybody listening at the door. And if not, perhaps we could bring in Brian Wilson. Let's do that. So we're very happy to welcome today a special guest to the podcast, Brian Wilson. Brian's based in Dallas, Texas, and in addition to being a fan of the Patrick O'Brien books, he's a co-host of the Combat and Classics podcast. And if Combat and Classics sounds rather martial, then it could be because Brian himself graduated the U.S. Naval Academy and spent 13 years as a human intelligence agent with the U.S. Marine Corps, during which time he deployed to Bosnia, East Africa, and Iraq. Uh, Brian was selected for a post with the CIA, but opted to leave active duty and move to D.C., where he worked as a human intelligence subject matter expert for Navy Special Warfare, which I think is known to the rest of us as the Navy SEALs, as well as serving as a reserve Marine officer teaching human intelligence tradecraft, which puts him, I think, in the bracket of knowing something about Stephen Maturin's life, which we'll come to shortly. At night, when he had time, (laughs) Brian attended St. John's College. Brian is a Johnny. I think that's what you have to say, right, Brian? That's right. Yeah, where he received an MA in liberal arts. And Brian, on top of your involvement in podcasting, where you're trying to introduce classic literature and philosophy to leaders, including active duty and serving and veteran U.S. military 
personnel. You also work in theater production, I think, and you're supporting the refugee community in and around Dallas and online. So, Brian, welcome. Oh, a glass of wine with you, gentlemen. Uh, and the, the, the bottle stands by you, Brian. It's great <laughs> to have you with us. No, I really appreciate you guys having me. This uh, I've really been enjoying your pods. I've been listening from episode one, and I'm really glad you guys are tackling this. Ah, great. Thank you. We're, we're having a great time, and thank you for joining us as a guest. We've talked about a lot of the topics and backstories of the characters so far. We've talked a bit about science. We've talked a bit about marine life and you know, the history side, but it's great to dig into what was going on for Stephen Maturin and maybe also for as an author for Patrick O'Brien putting together the character of Stephen Maturin and his work. So, Brian, you've made this journey, as we heard, from marine officer to intelligence agent to commentator and educator. That sounds like a fair number of twists and turns. Can you tell us a bit more about how that all came about? Yeah, I, I think that I just I, I knew I wanted to be a marine, yeah, uh, and I so I opted to go to the naval academy. And then while at the naval academy, I was kind of exposed to the Marine Corps counterintelligence, human intelligence community a little bit, and said, "Hey, that's what I want to do." Uh, so, you know, picked up that gig out of basic officers course and, uh, went on to deploy, like you mentioned, to Bosnia, East Africa and Iraq, uh, picked up, uh, an option to go to CIA, but, uh, opted to kind of put that on pause because I'd been deploying a lot uh-huh. and, uh, went to Iraq and just had some kind of big questions about the nature of man. Mm. So, uh, thought that, a good place to go to kind of explore that a little bit would St. John's College, which is right across the street from the Naval Academy. And uh, really enjoyed my time there and kind of found people that were interested in those same questions. And I, I haven't answered them necessarily, but that's kind of what also led to the Combat and Classics podcast. And our tagline is understanding the nature of man and conflict and cooperation. So that's what we do over there. And that's the stuff I'm still trying to sort out. Wow. Wow. Big themes as well. Well, I, you know, I, I also work in a lot of really bad jokes and, uh, you know, Jack Aubrey <laughs> level puns in there uh, as well. So it's not all erudite all the time. <laughs> And, and, and that may be the nature of man, right? Yeah, it could be. Well, Brian, in all that, it's great. Uh, in all that, Brian, how did you first get interested in the Patrick O'Brien books and how did they tie into your other interests? <laughs> well, um, you, you'll be shocked to find if you haven't been to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, that there is not a lot to do there if you are not into uh, like fast food uh, and strip clubs. So and tattoo parlors and tattoo parlors. So uh, going to the movies was a big night out uh, when you're in your 20s uh, in Camp Lejeune. So I just opted to go see this weird master and commander movie that looked cool in, you know, like 2003 or something like that and was just kind of blown away. Uh, then at the time I had uh, a girlfriend in DC, which is about a five and a half hour drive from Lejeune and you want to get out of there as often as possible. So mm-hmm. they actually had the, uh, Patrick Tull, uh, tapes, books on tape and physical tape at the Camp Lejeune library. So I started working my way through the books on tape and basically would get through a book about every weekend driving to and from DC and basically became completely enraptured with uh, the canon and also to maintain to this day that Patrick Tull is one of the greatest performance artists in the history of the world. Uh, and so I am uh, currently on about my 18th circumnavigation, if my wow. little tick marks uh, are, are accurate, <laughs> because I basically read, you know, uh, I was cranking through at 
a higher speed than once a year because of all the audiobooks, uh, and then had the complete collection. And then once it came out on Kindle, bought them all on Kindle again, and have just been cranking through ever since then. And am you know utterly fascinated by Stephen Matron more so than Jack Aubrey. Uh, though Jack has a lot of depth, I think that you know maybe people don't catch as as much, but you know, we're, I'm completely a, a bit enraptured by Steven and kind of what he goes through as a, an intelligence agent and how O'Brien develops him as a character. Very cool. I think you've got a fellow Patrick Toll uh, adherent with Mike as well. Is that right, Mike? Oh, yeah, very much so. Love Patrick Toll. <laughs> and and just to say, I have nothing against Vance. I've literally never listened to it, but in my soul, I have this distaste <laughs> for Vance because he's right. not Patrick Toll. And it's a purely tribal thing. I've never listened to a single second of the Vance but for some reason, I'm just like, oh, screw that Vance guy. It's tall all the way. But, you know, tribalism, it is what it is. It gave me a vis- uh, you know, essentially a visceral appreciation for imprinting. <laughs> Imprinted on tall. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. It's funny. It's a, it's a real hot topic for people who listen, people who talk about the books online. Everybody's got their favorite. Everybody's got a memory associated with when they first heard an O'Brien audiobook. So I think it's really. So you've read, what, 18... 18- circumnavigations and mike and i between us i don't know how many we're into now but as we go through this reread we're just getting to the end of destination island we're coming to the beginning of fortune of war steven's life as an intelligence agent has clearly evolved since the beginning of the series and was there anything about his evolution as a as a practitioner that rang true with you well i think it's it's very interesting and and I really I would ask both of you and any of our listeners to feel free to correct me on any of my either assertion of facts or analysis. But we're right on it. Know, Don't worry. Yeah, we're right. <laughs> there really is an, an evolution of Stephen as agent, right? Yeah. Uh, there is the kind of adorable scene in Master and Commander where he's up on a, up on a hill uh, looking at the French ships with his telescope and Aubrey, uh, you know, Pallier confronting Aubrey and saying, you know, what is he doing up there? And, uh, you know, the Aubrey just laughs at the suggestion that Steven is a spy. And, and as we understand it, he, he wasn't necessarily at that point, right? He gets recruited somewhere between master and commander and post captain. At least that's kind of how it's presented. Yeah. But then, you know, we remember in book two in post captain of, of him getting, is it two or three? Let's, let's hope it's two. Um, you know, he gets rolled up in Spain and it's tortured and there's this kind of evolution of tradecraft that he continues to use. And then we see him and, and here's, what's fascinating. And I think that I'd love to, you know, kind of let your listeners in on this. Yeah a little bit because it's introduced actually in, in the beginning of desolation Island. And that is that Maturin is doing something in terms of kind of running operations or running an op, yeah. you know, right out of the beginning of the page. And it's with the two doctors mm. that you guys talked about. And, and you, and it is a hilarious passage where Mrs. Williams has to get her hair right. done before she puts her cap on before she sees the doctors. But there's literally this little throwaway line between Steven and Jack right after this, where they go for a ride and he turns to Jack because, um, you know, the, the, the eminent doctors have prescribed that Mrs. Williams go take the waters at bath for a time. And Steven turns to Jack once they're alone and, and on their horses and says, and says, we've pulled it off. And then they just keep going, talking about other things completely different. But we, we learn there is that basically Steven is completely capable of kind of running an op 
just to get the, you know, annoying mother-in-law out of the house, you know? And you know, the reason I actually picked that up is because if you remember, we were originally talking about me jumping on during Fortune of War. So I started yeah. reading that and I, I won't give away any spoilers, but I will just say, be on the lookout in chapter one of Fortune of War, where Stephen also makes a questionable decision in terms of his role as doctor in order to carry out an intelligence operation. So there's something here where Stephen is kind of presented as this, you know, somewhat noble soul this uncompromising noble soul and yet he's still you know in his role as doctor will get rid of his mother-in-law will perform a questionable operation on a fellow agent oh, in right. fortune of war so there's these little hints that get dropped in as the steven's character that you know i i wasn't even really paying as much attention to until you know preparing for this podcast and wanting to kind of get a little bit more in depth with steven as a character huh. it's funny we've been talking in this week's episode about how one of the nice things about the payoff at the end of Desolation Island, which we can talk about because our, our listeners are at that point now, the, the the intelligence coup that Stephen pulls off as the he engineers the escape of Wogan and Herapath is mm-hmm. is nice for us as readers because he's actually able to do something that's reasonably morally centered and generous and and principled, <laughs> and it's he still feels a little bit dirty, but I think it was just nice to realize that he was enjoying that moment of just letting it all happen and letting all the pieces slide together so that Wogan and Herapath could make their way away. Yeah. And, but here's, here's where you get this very funny duality with Steven, right? Is because also what he does there is inserts a poison pill, Yeah, right? Is, is by using his, his, uh, surgeon's mate, you know, the, the French English, uh, surgeon's mate that, that perished during the yellow Jack or during the gold fever in desolation Island. And by planting those papers with Wogan, you know, he basically causes widespread destruction within the the, the American intelligence network. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a question of, is he having a chuckle with Bondin at the end of Desolation because simply of Wogan's laughter carry, you know, carrying across the night sea? Or is he realizing that his poison pill is going to be delivered? And you don't know. That's that's kind of the, the beauty of Stephen's character and a lot of yeah. the beauty of O'Brien's writing is that a lot, you know, you don't, you get, you get a ton of this kind of inner dialogue of Stephen and writing in his diary and things like that. And you get this kind of surface level thing of, oh, he hates Bonaparte. But I think that's something that's necessary for your readers to know um, and that some of them do know is, is there's nothing like the great game. You know, and that's what we kind of call intelligence operations. There's nothing there's nothing really like it in in humanity because there are very few rules and you can basically get as creative as you want. And it is a highly competitive um, environment. And so for a lot of people, it is where they feel most alive. And I, I wonder about that, especially in Desolation Island in the intro where Steven yeah. is, you know, so uh, addicted to laudanum. And, and you guys were very thoughtfully pointed out the, the kind of introduction of Maturin in Desolation Island where one of the eminent doctors is saying, you know, I think that Ian, you pointed this out, or Mike was, you know, I've known one eminent gentleman that goes up to 18,000 drops a day and dot, dot, dot. Oh, Dr. Matron, welcome. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we know that Stephen has turned back to laudanum and we see that fight with his addiction throughout the, throughout Desolation Island and throughout a lot of the other books. So it's interesting to understand potentially how that duality tears at you as a character uh, in a novel or as an individual that's doing it. Yeah, this duality, this idea of being an agent while also trying to be a person, you know, it seems to have a massive impact on Stephen's character. He reflects on it often. 
Uh, it also seems to impact his happiness, the choices that he makes. You know, Brian, from your experience, does that ring true from what you've seen or heard from people in the intelligence field? Well, I think that it's it's a very interesting and relatable idea that you're doing it for some noble purpose, that there's a grand reason that is greater than yourself, that you are trying to, quote unquote, save the world in some way by doing what you're doing and taking the risks that you're taking. But I think that a lot of the times, and I use this, we're, we're working through uh, Xenophon's The Education of Cyrus in the Combat and Classics mm-hmm. podcast right now. And you don't get a lot of Cyrus's internal dialogues. Cyrus the Great, the Persian emperor yeah. that conquered most of the known world at the time. And you don't get a lot of inner dialogue about why he does what he does. And so mm-hmm. I posited a hypothesis that I ripped off of um, the wonderful John Cusack movie, <laughs> Gross Point Blank, yep. which is yeah. uh, where he... He, right. he's a hitman um, that, you know, originally joined the army and then went CIA and then became a four hire hitman. And he kind of explains his rationale and goes, you know, at some point you do it because you find out you're good at it. And I think that that is, you know, that can be the case with this great game of you get to a point where you're like, man, I can basically do, I can get other people to do whatever I want to do. That sure is fun. Uh, (laughs) Why don't I keep doing it? Yeah. But the cost to that seems to be that you retreat behind this facade that that tries to make you look a bit, a bit duller and maybe hide some of the fun that you're having and some of the fulfillment that you're getting from the rest of the world. That's definitely part of it. And, and, and thankfully there is, you know, or, or maybe not, thankfully, there's a very tight cohesion with the the people that you work with that are quote unquote on your side, or even, even not on your side. There is a degree of a gentleman's agreement from both sides of these types of operations. But, you know, I was, I was reading recently some of the collected essays of Emerson and he has this wonderful quote where he says, should a man find himself with a stomach ache, he goes about to reform the world. And I feel like that, (laughs) Uh, that very aptly described probably Brian Wilson Mm. in his early twenties. Um, and maybe Brian Wilson now and, and most definitely Stephen Matron. And then, you know, another way to kind of soothe that stomach ache is with various substances. And, and and we certainly, I certainly saw that, you know, when I was in the Marine Corps and especially in the Mm. intelligence world, um, that, Man, we we tend to be powerful drinkers um, and, and and powerful users of uh, varieties of substances in order to, you know, let us say soothe our stomachs. But you know, who really knows why we have to disassociate from reality so strongly and so potently with with certain things. You know, it, it, so there's there's another wonderful book since we're going to talk about drug addiction called Chasing the Scream by Johan Hari, who's um, one of your fellow countrymen, uh, Ian. Yeah. And, you know, he makes a lot of, he makes the case that, you know, addiction isn't necessarily uh, because of your desire for substance. It's because of your desire for connection Mm. and those that cannot really pull that off as sufficiently need to kind of change their mental state. And so, you know, again, we see what is Steven's primary drive in terms of connection is Diana and what does he not have for the first, you know, eight books is connection with Diana. And even after that, not necessarily as well. Um, Mm. so, you know, it's, it's not terribly, and what do you, you know, have to do as an intelligence agent is, is moderate your connection, right? Because you can never really be yourself with anyone. Um, and that certainly puts Mm. a strain on you. 
We want to come back to romantic relationships and a little bit of Louisa Wogan and a lot of Diana Villiers later on. But since we're talking about the portrayal of life for an intelligence agent, it seems that O'Brien's doing a, a good job in portraying that the life as, as you've understood it, Brian. Um, and any other authors that you've liked or that you'd compare with O'Brien in kind of nailing this strange dual world of the intelligence officer? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, Lacare. <laughs> My my favorite Lacare book, um, which I'm sure a lot of our readers have read, uh, a decent amount of Lacare, uh, is definitely the Looking Glass War. Mm, yeah. You know, this is after World War II, and basically the UK's version of the Defense Intelligence Agency has kind of been stripped of its power and its funding, and um, you know they they get a tip and they think it's big and they want to run their own op, and it all falls apart and shambles. And Lacare actually, you know, made the comment that he wrote that right after Spy that came in from the cold, be, as, as an apologia <laughs> that he was so like somewhat upset about the success of this of Spy who came in from the cold that he needed to write something much more realistic about the intelligence world. And so, writing about defense intelligence and running a shambolic operation that ultimately, you know, cost lives and the security yeah. of the UK and ended in tragedy was much more the case yeah. than some elaborate spy versus spy, supervillain versus Superman kind of story. And I mean, it struck me that Looking Glass War, I mean, I really liked about the any of the Smiley books that he's got this very sort of down at heel, slightly gray, washed away tone. And I think the, the movie portrayed that really well as well. Mm-hmm. But Looking Glass War is the most down at heel, the most kind of schlubby, grimy, tragic personally broken account of the life of people who work in intelligence yeah yeah and and a lot of it is a thirst to be back Mm. in the game right and that's that's portrayed in that book and um you know it might be why steven is at the level of addiction he is in desolation island because you know he's not really doing much there's this lull after the mauritius you know the the laurels have wilted and yeah. you know diana is gone and so you know of course he's going to run an op on mrs williams because you know he wants to get back into the game because he's figured out what he's good at but he doesn't have a chance to do it well and he doesn't want to be put out of the game which is it sounds like sir joseph is thinking about doing with him there <laughs> You know, we're thinking about Lacare, we're thinking about O'Brien. O'Brien himself, Brian, what do you think? You know, a lot of his life seems to be concealed or imagined, and, and nobody really knows for sure whether he was in intelligence in World War II, as he claimed. But do you get the impression that he had first-class experience himself? I mean, I think that I, I, I almost would love to think so. But then I think about the fact that he was never in the Navy, (laughs) you know, and was never, certainly never in the Napoleonic Navy and his ability in that regard. And I, I I think that it's certainly plausible that he just read up enough and, um, uh, what's the word, just kind of elaborated on the human condition as he would imagine it. And some of the things that, you know, he researched in terms of human intelligence and, got it spot on just because that was his unique ability. And I think why we're so enraptured with these books so much is because you feel like it's almost, you know, a literary Jack Aubrey describing everything in first person because of the level of detail that, you know, Ah, is very realistic and, and, and seems like you're just, you're right there with them. Very cool. So we've been, as you say, looking back at Desolation Island and it, was very noticeable in 
HMS Surprise and Mauritius Command. Although he was having some success, Stephen was finding that you know the taste of his life was turning to ashes in his mouth, if you like. He was disillusioned. In Desolation Island, he gets his mojo back a little, and he conjures up, as we've said, this very neat deception involving Louisa Wogan, and we get this really quite detailed account of him positioning himself very carefully and indirectly to be credible to her as an apparent ally and to be able to use her as a source. How well do you think Maturin handled that? Oh, I mean, I think it's it's brilliant from the get, right? Because I think partly he is if not consciously, then at least subconsciously desperate to continue doing what he's good at. You know, we have the, in the first meeting that he has with Wogan, you know, he basically just is putting on the pompous authoritarian doctor. And, you know, as he, as he leaves, he, he makes that comment to himself and he seems very pleased with himself. He says that, you know, he purposely put on this front of, uh, pompous authoritarian because it was a good uh, a good approach to walk back from and so you know by setting up basically the uh, attraction repulsion dynamic between the two of them and that it will be up to her to try to uh, make an approach on him because he is very formal and very rigid and she is naturally a bit of a charmer then you know he's running an op on her from the get-go and so i think that he is very excited about the opportunity to get back into doing what he's good at. So, Brian, you know, talking about sort of this attraction here, attraction repulsion thing that I cut my teeth on 007 and Ian Fleming, you know, early in grade school. And so you get this spy who, you know, and, and, and romance and relationships and intrigues. But with O'Brien, you know, Stephen talks about in Desolation Island this sexual attraction that he has and and between himself and Louisa Wogan. And he starts to think about what she thinks too. But by the time he engineers her escape, uh, he seems to be past that point of attraction. You know, what do you think uh, O'Brien is telling us about the incompatibility of relationships and intelligence work or what have you found? Well, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, I'll, I'll compare it to Wallace so we don't jump around too much. Um, in the beginning of Fortune of War. And again, this is, it's, it's not a big spoiler, but there is this moment when he and Wallace are talking in the first chapter of Fortune of War, where you, you have the actual text of their conversation and then O'Brien inserts the subtext. And one of the, as they're going back and forth and having this, you know, surface level conversation, O'Brien inserts the subtext uh, after one of the comments from Stephen that basically says, O'Brien basically writes that under the terms of the game, it was Wallace's turn to, or it was Wallace's choice now to turn over his cards or continue with the game. And when, and this happens whenever, you know, I'll talk to people that I've been friends with for close on 20 years that, you know, we both cut our teeth in the intelligence game in the early aughts and we do this to each other. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's a bit of foreplay for us where we are going to kind of have this surface level conversation and and be like, okay, who's the first one that's going to want to talk about, you know, that's going to want to drop their cards and actually show them, or are we going to keep doing this? Uh, and so there's, there's a bit of, uh, you know, what we, we were talking about the wire before the show started and there's a, a wonderful quote on there, which is, um, you know, game recognizes yeah. game. And so I yeah. think that what Steven's doing in that first meeting with Wogan, aside from, 
you know, just setting up himself as kind of this pompous authoritarian that he can walk back is also assessing her and seeing how much mm. game she has. Is she going to try to manipulate him right out of the gate? You know, what is that going to tell him about how she will handle the kind of his, his assault, shall we say? And this is similar to the Mauritius. You know, you guys talked about this in your Mauritius pod mm. where Jack was telling Stephen, I just need to see the French fleet. That's all I need. I can see him, you know, right. topsails down, you know, from 15 miles away and I'll know more about him than I do right now. And that's the same in the human intelligence game is like once you meet somebody and talk to them for two minutes, um, you have a good kind of idea of who you're dealing with and kind of how they'll maneuver and <laughs> how fast they can change their top sails <laughs> and how fast they can, you know, cut across your bow. It's, it's a very similar kind of process that is partly conscious and partly unconscious. Wow. So Steven's managed to combine the pursuing the game with Louisa Wogan and, and I think he seems to enjoy the fact that there's a bit of attraction between them, but I don't think there was ever any question that he was just going to use this as a situation to to kind of gain his intelligence ends. Me- meanwhile, the person who really fancies her, Michael Herapath, who's on board, seems to be this sort of patsy who's there to be used and abused by Stephen, by Wogan, by Patrick O'Brien even. you know, How, how did you feel about Herapath when you read his character? Oh, I mean, he, he is a precious youth, you know, he, yeah. <laughs> he, <laughs> poor, poor lamb. <laughs> and, you know, there, but for the grace of God goes Stephen Maturin, right. Um, and, and, and Blaine makes the case, right. uh, yeah. you know, it, well, O'Brien, uh, writes in that first conversation between Blaine and Stephen that that Blaine sees a, a striking similarity between Herapath's um, nature and his fascination with Wogan and Stephen's nature to mm. a degree and fascination with Diana. So, you know, they they have they've traveled a, a similar path, so to speak, being fascinated by ancient texts and and the learned world, but still there is this unobtainable woman that drives them crazy for some reason. And, and that they have to use kind of all of their mental capacity and occasionally the poppy in order to just survive that existence. Yeah. Right. Now, you wanted to make a point, I think, about the connection between the Wogan Herapath relationship and another romantic relationship that came much earlier in the novel. So take us yeah. there, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like I said, when I was, um, when we started talking about doing this, we were talking about doing it during Fortune yeah. of War. And so I, I was just kind of flipping through initially and just kind of looking for Stephen's kind of evolution and Stephen's character as it's expressed in Fortune of War, because a lot of interesting things happen to Stephen in that book. But, you know, just flipping to the front and flipping to the back of that book, there's a very interesting parallel. And again, I won't give away much spoilers, but basically, um, and, and what's also fascinating, and I'd, I'd love for your readers to help me out with this is that in that first conversation with Wallace, there's a Latin term just thrown out, which is fragile ratus, which means fragile yeah. craft. And the first opening scene is Jack and Steven coming into port with this very fragile craft. Mm. 
and coming into safety. And then the last scene of the book in Fortune of War is Jack and Stephen uh, leaving an unsafe harbor in a fragile craft. Mm-hmm. And so I, when I flipped back to Desolation Island, I was like, I wonder if O'Brien's going to do something similar here with a you know kind of a bookend concept. And basically what I came up with, um, if this is true, it could be totally ludicrous and, and a Rorschach test as a lot of literary folks <laughs> uh, <laughs> can be. Is that what we have at the end, which is the, you know, Wogan and Harapath, you know, leaving on the American ship. And it actually opens with Killick purchasing a wife at a market um, near Portsmouth. I think it's near Portsmouth. Yeah. And that we find out later that this is a common con that this couple does. Right. The the, the woman and her, her her former husband, that they go from market to market near sailor sailing ports. Uh, they, you know, he sells his wife and then they reconnect once the sailor leaves and do it all over oh, again. Really? And so <laughs> there's there's something I think there which he's which O'Brien bookends the story with which is this some kind of basically con or intelligence operation that is coupley in nature that takes advantage of an unassuming uh, you know man at sea in this case Harapath uh, with Wogan or uh, you know with Killick in the beginning of the book because you know you read that and you're like why is this here why do we need this in the story I'd love any you know once you guys post this if any of the readers want to post on your Facebook page and say you know hey you're full of it Brian or hey that's actually you know the case in a lot of the books because it's an interesting kind of literary trope that I think O'Brien might be using in this case and in other books as well. Oh, that's great. And it makes huge sense as well. I mean, because everybody else who's a sailor in those first couple of chapters is being taken for a ride somehow. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's, you know, this is where uh, one of my gigs is a theater critic, you know, and also having gone to St. John's is you know, these little subtle things that you don't even maybe consciously pick up on still add to the story to a tremendous degree because a, when it does become conscious, it adds depth to the, you know, there's the story, but also even subconsciously these little parallels and these little kind of homages, uh, even if audiences don't, you know, necessarily get it consciously, they kind of feel it subconsciously. Yeah. So I think that maybe that's what O'Brien's doing with this kind of Killick's wife episode. <laughs> so Brian, we're at the beginning of Fortune and War, and Stephen's intelligence work is continuing to have a major impact on his relationship with Diana. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, there's, you know, there's a, a bit of an aphorism that me and a good friend of mine use, uh, both for our own past relationships and also having worked in the intelligence world uh, for a significant amount of time and seeing other people in that world. And the saying is that you marry the source you can't recruit. (laughs) And, and I think that, you know, that, that is a a big part of the attraction with Diana where Steven can bounce around and set up source networks in Spain and in France and all over the world and, uh, very short order with, you know, some risk and some skill, but he can do it. But Diana Villers, for some reason, he he either isn't capable of doing the the kind of thing that he does with Wogan in the in- introduction or in their first meeting, where he can put on a certain characteristic in order to get some kind of result, yeah. um, or not willing to do that because mm. his feelings are such that he can't do it um, just from an emotional state standpoint. But imagine hypothetically, gentlemen, mm-hmm. um, someone in their 
mid twenties, shall we say, um, you know, young, relatively fit, somewhat intelligent and having this skill set where you can basically kind of wave your little Jedi hand and, you know, these are not the droids you're looking for, or, you know, would you like me to buy you a drink? Um, you know, and, and then you meet somebody where you do your magic Jedi trick and they're, and they're basically like, what are you doing with your hand? What's the hand thing that you're doing? (laughs) And you kind of come onto this idea of, Oh, she's special. She's unique. She's not like the other girls. And, you know, then you just pursue her with even more, even more fervor and much more fervor than you'd ever had before because you didn't, you know, A, need to, and B, it's a fascinating kind of uh, examination of humanity when it's like, this stuff works all the time. (laughs) Why isn't it working now? Right. And I and so I wonder how much Stevens, you know, ongoing fascination with Diana is just based on that idea of, you know, though, though we don't get any inkling that Stevens been overly successful with women, he still does have this ability to manage sources in an incredible way. So you know, what is it about Diana that keeps him chasing and chasing and chasing? And then the same with Harapath. Right. Um, it's the real sort of compelling and tragic thing about it is there's there's no end in sight you can imagine that a, a campaign in the indian ocean could end in defeat or victory and you can imagine that you take on a french frigate and you either sink her or you don't but steven's pursuit of diana you get the into the rhythm of it that right. he's going to keep trying and get set back and be a little manipulated and a little bit damaged and then recover and it's just like agonizing to watch no, it's it's incredibly painful to watch, but it's also very relatable for people <laughs> um, that have been in the game. Yeah. You know, I remember my my first uh, Christmas party uh, after I got out and was a defense contractor and was working with the SEALs. And, you know, the company that I worked for was basically all intelligence agents. And, um, you know, pretty much every single person there was on their second or third marriage. And yeah. mm-hmm. um, it was a, a very colorful cast of characters. And so that, you know, that I think was partly why I kind of got on this idea of, you know, why, why do we as intelligence professionals kind of seemingly recreate the same dynamic in our romantic relationships again and again Mm -hmm. and again? And, you know, having at that point read through the canon at least, you know, two or three times going back to it and seeing the relationship between Steven and Diana, like, honestly, that, that would be my biggest piece of evidence. If I had to convince, (laughs) you know, several people in the intelligence field that O'Brien was an intelligence, like I could talk about some of the, you know, linguistic capabilities or the ability to kind of chameleon yourself in different venues. But if I just said, yeah, he chased the same woman uh, over the course of, you know, know, many years and just, and wouldn't leave her alone. And she had a bit of a drinking problem and was a bit of a, um, how did Jack put it in the beginning of desolation woman, a light woman, like, uh, you know, and they'd be like, Oh, Oh yeah, that, no, that's actually very convincing. So, Yeah, there's something there's something there in Stevens um, kind of chase for Diana that is probably the biggest the biggest telltale that uh, that O'Brien might have worked in intelligence. Right. Oh, well, nice. it's that and a couple of other things are making us really excited to get into Fortune of War. Actually, the prospect of 
for you know Stephen carrying on his pursuit of Diana different places around the world. We're coming into the War of 1812 as well, which for all of our history buff listeners and 1812 war listeners gets exciting as well. And uh, we get the connection with the role of the horrible old leopard and the and the Chesapeake affair. So that's loads and loads of stuff to look forward to in, in Fortune of War. So thank you for the little look ahead. Um, yeah, and I'll also just add that, you know, it, Fortune of War or Treason's Harbor are, are my two favorite books in the canon. So uh, for anybody, okay. any of your listeners that are, you know, maybe iffy towards continuing on the reading or continuing with the pods, like you're getting to the best stuff in Ryan Wilson's humble estimation. <laughs> Well, that's really great. Thank you. So speaking of looking forward, um, what's next for you? What's going on with, with Combat and Classics? What are you working on next? Yeah, so we are working through, we're doing a pretty uh, deliberate and slow read through the entirety of The Education of Cyrus by Xenophon. Wow. Um, for your listeners specifically on why you would potentially be interested in that, you know, there is a theme that runs through all of O'Brien's Aubrey Maturin series about the nature of power and those who can wield it uh, responsibly and those who are tempted by it. And, you know, Cyrus to a degree is the anti-Jack in this, mm. uh, in this story that he has all the kind of same capabilities of Jack and that, you know, it's, you could definitely call him lucky Cyrus yep. for, <laughs> you know, the first six or seven chapters, but, uh, things change pretty rapidly. And that idea of power. Uh, you know, he becomes a bit of a, a cross between Clonfort and Corbett to go back mm-hmm. to your, your Mauritius campaign. Yeah, right. uh, so if, if folks are maybe interested in learning a little bit more about classical literature and about classical literature as it relates to kind of the nature of, of man and conflict and cooperation, which is, like I said, our, our kind of tagline is understanding that, then, yeah, give us a listen and, you know, uh, maybe give us a like. Oh, that'd be what, great. And I really enjoyed the episode on Coriolanus, which was a while ago now. But that, oh, that yeah. idea about the theme of power and the theme of, you know, how it relates at the national level and the personal level was really great. So t- uh, tell oh, us, is there any, any place people can follow you on social media, Brian? What, what's your, your web presence? Do you want to give that a shout? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can find uh, at Combat and Classics on uh, Instagram. We are at Combat underscore Classics on Twitter, uh, Combat and Classics on Facebook. And then easiest way to find me is on Twitter. I'm just at Brian PCF, Papa Ch- Charlie Foxtrot. Um, so if you want to tag along for the journeys in combat and classics or the journeys of Brian Wilson, you can find me there. Fantastic. Well, Brian, we really appreciate, we know that there's much you can't tell us because you'd have to do us in, right? And you only hear that <laughs> every time you get interviewed, I suspect. Right. But we really appreciate your insight on intelligent agents and, and you know, somebody that's got this kind of knowledge of the canon and so much love for it. Thanks so much for taking time to be with us here on A Lover's Hole. Well, and I just really appreciate what you guys are doing. Like, uh, you know, the world needed a, a Aubrey Matron podcast, and I think you guys are doing a terrific job. So thank you for doing what you're doing. Oh, fantastic. Grog for all hands. Thanks very much, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> bumpers, gentlemen, bumpers. <laughs> no heel right. thanks, thanks again, Brian. <laughs> so it was great talking to Brian. We learned a lot about how Stephen's life up to this point as an intelligence agent corresponds and rings true a little bit. We've also learned about what's coming as we get into Fortune of War and the further tensions that are going to play out in Stephen's life as he tries to reconcile being a being a man, being an intelligence agent, and also being the person who's in love with Diana Villiers. So, lots to look forward to next time as we reach to the shelf, Mike, and bring down Fortune of War. What do you say to a bit more Patrick O'Brien? 
Oh, with all my heart. mentioned um you guys i think it was in the last episode that you guys published where you were talking about the the scottish marines and how scottish marines kept showing up and i was i was looking for a way to work that in because my my forebears are mostly scottish uh and i ended up in the oh wow but then there and i was going to just work in the joke of uh at my family reunions in pennsylvania i was oft reminded that uh me great 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 grandfather killed the king england um, <laughs> oh, fantastic. I like the accent. <laughs>